every generation there is a chosen podcast. It alone will analyze the subtext, the allegory, and the clever Whedon-esque dialogue. It is Conversations with Dead People. Conversations with Dead People, a post-mortem podcast on the works of Joss Whedon. Uh, my name is Paul. I'm your host, and I'm typically joined by guests from the worlds of fandom and academia as we make our way through the critically acclaimed series Buffy the Vampire Slayer and its spin-off series Angel. Uh, this week we've made it to Buffy Season 4, Episode 10, Hush, and uh, joining me back for the first time in, I can't remember how long, it's been a while. It's been a while since I've done this podcast, man. I can't, I can't take two months off of a podcast again. It's like, it's like learning to walk all over. Uh, anyways, back from the, the depths of the past is a, a former podcaster, question mark, and rock star <laughs> Ken Edwards. Ken, welcome back. Thank you, Paul. Happy to be here. I, it's been since April. Oh my I, I, I was here, right? Ouch. Ouch. Like a stake through my heart, man. That is way too long. What is wrong with me? Um, well, uh, the robot dad just decided I, I, I couldn't do it anymore, but luckily I found out he was a robot, pushed him down some stairs, and and, uh, and and now I'm back. I can do it again. Okay. Awesome. Well, uh, it's good to have you back. It's it's good to be back. I feel like that's the elephant in the room that I'm going to have to address for just a couple of minutes here and say, yeah, guys, it looked like the podcast was dead, huh? You gave up on me, didn't you? <laughs> so uh, the last, uh, the the previous episode in your feed of this podcast came out um, almost exactly two months ago uh, in November of 2018. And I don't know, holidays and uh, hectic life schedule and maybe a bit of podcast burnout. I don't know what happened, but I, t I took a, I took an unsolicited hiatus from podcasting and I didn't realize it was going to be this long before I got back into it, but here we are. We're back. I'm re I'm refreshed, recommitted. Um, we'll, we'll see what I can make of this. We'll see if uh, this podcast is still worth anything after so long away from the mic, but Anyways, um, also just coincidentally, um, no, not coincidentally. I totally planned it this way. This is why I took two months off of the podcast. Cause I didn't want to record again until I had an opportunity to talk about the first issue of the brand new reboot Buffy, the vampire slayer comic book series from boom studios. Um, that's not true. I actually have not really actually been looking forward to this book. Um, and I don't usually do these little sort of pre-show review things. I don't have a banter portion in this particular podcast, but since it just came out yesterday, at the time of this recording, I've had this comic in my hands and by in my hands, I mean on my computer for 24 hours. Uh, I thought it was worth it to just address it um, and say that, um, yeah, it exists. It's there. So it's written by Jordi Blair with art by Dan Mora. 
And um, Jordi Belair is typically, uh, like, the world knows her primarily as a colorist. She she usually is a, a comics colorist, an award-winning, a two-time Eisner award-winning colorist. Uh, she does fantastic work. She has done some writing before, but I think not a lot. Um, I don't believe I've ever read, read anything that she's written, so I didn't know what to expect. Um, and this is, uh, like I said, a reboot of the property. This is the Buffy comics starting over from scratch um, and literally going back. It's basically a retelling of Welcome to the Hellmouth. Um, and it's a an updating... Oh my gosh, my cat just has to be on the show. Um, it's an update of the property. So like uh, it's set in modern day. This is not 1997 Sunnydale. It's 2000. 19 Sunnydale so everybody's got cell phones and the character dynamics are a little bit different um everybody dresses a little differently I think the weirdest part for me was that Willow uh no longer uh sees the softer side of Sears now she wears um clothes that the 1997 original version of Willow would probably call skanky so it's a little weird to see these characters kind of updated and uh i've read it twice my first reaction was literally ug like i went online and just went ug <laughs> um and it's not so my reaction to it wasn't based on this is not my buffy they've changed this uh, it, it wasn't the, all of the significant changes um it wasn't having characters run into each other in different ways and it wasn't sort of updating the the interpersonal relationships or introducing characters in completely different like it's altering sort of the timeline of the original show that's not the stuff that turned me off um my co-host on my other podcast gobbledy geek he and i have been talking a lot recently about how we we've grown to actually enjoy reboots and retellings of stories like it it for most of our lives it bugged us that spider-man was just getting rebooted over and over and then we were getting multiple versions of the same damn story but we've kind of come to appreciate that so that's not my issue with th this uh new buffy era in the comics it really was just the writing which is why i said that jory blair she has written before but i'm not familiar with her writing and i don't think she's done a lot um i'm hoping maybe she just kind of needs to get into the swing of it because the writing was a little I don't, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is maybe frivolous. It was, it's this weird catch 22 of she has to sort of try and capture the essence of the, the actors that everybody associates with these characters, but she's also trying to tell her own story and completely update everything. It, it was just awkward. I thought it was awkward. Um, sounds interesting i want to I, I it's weird that they'd have to use up a whole frame for buffy to do a dab after every time that she slays a vampire <laughs> yeah, exactly yes that's exactly it <laughs> uh yeah there's there's a whole there's a full page dedicated to xander doing the floss dance <laughs> oh boy <laughs> yeah yeah see what i'm saying no um i i mean i'm gonna keep giving it a shot i will say the art by dan mora um one of the things i've struggled with famously not a fan of the Buffy comics tip, you know, generally speaking. And one of the things I've usually struggled with is the art, because just like I was saying about the writing where you're, you need to sort of capture what came before, but also blaze your own trail. Um, in 
in uh, licensed properties, anytime a comic tries to visually represent characters that have been portrayed by actors on screen for years, it's it's just weird, uh, and it doesn't usually work. Um, so I've I've very rarely been a fan of any of the art, even the great artists. I'm just usually not a fan of the way this stuff adapts from screen to page visually. But I that's not the case here. I think the art in here is really good. I think Dan Mora does a great job of having these characters look recognizable, but not being slavish to uh, the source material. Anyways, uh, I'm going to stick with it. I'll give it, I'll give it some time to grow on me and see uh, if maybe I, it get it gets past its adolescence or whatever its awkward stumbling stage. I mean, even the show, the real show, the real Buffy, even it kind of <laughs> had to find its footing for a while. So I'll give the comic a shot, but. It's good. A lot, a lot of problems are going to be solved real quick when she can just text Giles from class that something's going wrong. I know that. So that did not come up in this first issue. I, I was wondering if we're going to just straight out of the gate deal with the whole, um, man, this story would have been easily solved if everyone just had cell phones and could call mm -hmm. each other. Um, I thought, well, that's going to be the first thing they do in the first issue of this book. And it didn't, that did not come up, but uh, we have seen them, look at their phones like the cover of issue one she's actually holding a stake in one hand and a cell phone in the other so they're obviously acknowledging that and i can't wait to see how they use that as a plot device but mm -hmm. anyways so that was that um what the heck have you been doing since april ken since april at that at that time when i talked to you last on this show um the band I'm in, we had just recorded like our first EP, like our first official recordings ever, um, and it had not been released. Those came out uh, as a four-track EP. The band I'm in is called the Alex Jonestown Massacre, and uh, we released What We Do Is Stupid last May. And uh, then um, a few months later, we recorded our debut album, which is called Fear of a Flat Planet. Mm -hmm. And it's available on iTunes, Spotify, and everywhere, and all that. And then um, over the past few weeks, um, I went on my first tour in a rock band. It was just eight days straight on the road, playing shows every night. And it was the best time of my life. And I encourage anyone who uh, likes rock and roll or punk rock music or anything like that, uh, or even if you don't, I, I think we're the one relevant rock band left in the world. Like, <laughs> like so, so even if you're young and only listen to trap and have tattoo faces or face tattoos, excuse me, then, uh, then you still might get into the Alex Jones sound massacre. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah. All right. Let's be honest. Let's be honest here. I, I will out myself. So when you dropped your EP, um, I was obviously super excited. I was super pumped. I love it when my friends, uh, you know, do something artistic and creative and like actually put it out in the world that, that still kind of blows me away that I, or anybody I know is able to do something and actually present it to the world, let the universe actually see it. So I was pumped, but it took me a while to listen to it. And I think part of that is it, this wasn't really conscious on my part, but I think subconsciously it was but what if it's not good like like i i know you're a great musician but i was i'm not a i'm not a really a fan of punk rock music and i knew that you sort of self-identify as punk and and so 
it just took me a while to listen to it. And then when I did listen to that EP, I was like, man, this is great. This is, this is like genuinely great. Um, and, but then I repeated the exact same process when you dropped your full album. <laughs> so <laughs> you put out that album and I was like, that is totally awesome. And I, I like paid for it and downloaded it and had it like on my device. And every couple of days I'd be like, oh man, I need to, I need to listen to that album. And then I just never did. And like, you and I hung out for a little while. Like we met up in Charlotte to go see Hamilton and, and we hung out and you were rightly giving me crap for having still not listened to your album. <laughs> and so anyways, long story short, I finally listened to it. And of course it was great. I, I, I'm, oh, I'm that's so sweet. I'm sorry. You haven't changed my life. I'm, I still would not identify as a punk rock fan, <laughs> but the album is great. And I do recommend it to people. I have recommended it to people. And uh, so, yeah. Thank you. I, I appreciate that, Paul. I did not know you'd listen to it. That means a lot. And yeah, I, I, I think there's a general fear whenever anybody releases something of like, is it going to be bad? Um, but I don't know. I, I, I don't even really care if people don't like it. I just want people to hear it. And if uh, anyone wants <laughs> just a taste of it, we did recently come out with a music video for the song Shake Me Judy. Just type in Shake Me Judy, Alex Jonestown Massacre, any combination of all of that. And you'll find it on YouTube. Um, I will put it, links. I'll put links in the show notes on this episode as well. Awesome. I appreciate that. But yeah, I, uh, it's funny. Like, I think it's more just like the punk ethos and attitude more than anything like in that we, I say it's a full length album. It's 27 minutes long. Like it's not like, yeah. it's not as long as most albums people think of, but some, uh, a friend of mine uh, called us a pop punk band the other night. And I, I felt that was a little reductive. I just see us as a rock <laughs> band. Like, I think we have like three pop punk songs, but it's mostly just rock and roll. That's to me what I'm doing when I get up on stage is I'm just like playing in a rock band, but you know, I, I a lot of people would classify it as as a sort of punk ish. So I, I would feel about like I'd be advertising falsely to not mention that. Labels, man. Labels. I know, right? We we don't need labels. Exactly. That's why we're the world's only relevant rock band. Which which by the way, like what a great rebranding. Like the Clash had it right when they were like, We're the only band that matters. The Clash, the only band that matters. And here I'm pushing up my glasses going, The Alex Jonestown Massacre, the world's only relevant rock band. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. I'm try I'm trying to get us to cover uh, the Buffy theme song. Oh, um, awesome. That would be amazing. I know as the biggest Buffy fan in the band, it's, it's not easy, but I'm like, it's 40 seconds long. It, people would go nuts. Come that, on, everybody. That would be tremendous. Please do that. Tell your band. I, I've said you have to do that. All right. I, I will. I'm, I'm sure they'll <laughs> take that under advisement. <laughs> it would be the most punk thing they could do, which would be to, to say, okay, and do whatever everybody wants. Yeah, exactly. That's punk rock, exactly. Oh, well, if that guy says we need to do it, then absolutely. <laughs> All right. Speaking of doing it, it's time. That was a, that was terrible. I should edit um, that out. That was awful. <laughs> that's <laughs> well, a just... Zan that was a Xander level misunderstanding. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right. Let me get this spoiler warning out of the way, and, and we'll start talking about this darn show. So, conversations with dead people is not a typical rewatch and review podcast. We're going to be exploring the plots, characters, and themes of each episode in depth and within the context of the series as a whole. That means spoilers and lots of them. So I recommend if you haven't already watched Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel the Series all the way through at least once, press pause on this podcast and please go do that. Uh, you'll thank me for it. Um, with that out of the way, 
Ken, if you're ready, let's go to work. All right. Um, this isn't going to be the entirely silent episode of this podcast, is it? Because that would, that would be some real magic right there. Well, I did promise. I think in the, in the outro of the previous episode, I think I had teased that this podcast would be the first one done entirely on like whiteboard, like dry erase board. <laughs> um, so yeah, let's just pretend that that's what it was that you and I already did this as a video podcast where it was all just whiteboard and I'm just reading the transcript of that. Now that's what this is. <laughs> and, so. and, and your Ken impression, you just kill it, man. You really get my intonations. It's, it's the, it's the magic of editing and, and audio, uh, manipulation. Yeah, exactly. And spells. Uh, yeah, spells exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Magic. Um, <laughs> Okay, so this is uh, just a single episode review. We're only talking about Hush. This is one of kind of the, the biggies in the the Buffy oeuvre, I suppose. Um, and I just have to comment that uh, when I was first putting this podta- podcast together and I, I sort of reached out to the fan community and, and said, who wants to discuss what episode with me? This is one of them. This is one of the big ones that I expected to fill up first that I just expected everybody to be like, Oh, I want to be on that episode. I want to be on that episode. Literally no one ever signed up for it. You were the only one that showed any interest in hush, which blows me away. I don't like, I don't know why people didn't want to talk about this. Yeah. Same. It was the first one I searched for because I just assumed it would be claimed. And when I saw no names on it, I was like, that is mine. Yeah. Yeah. I'll see you guys in season four. (laughs) So congratulations, Ken. You, you got the biggie here. Um, after having to suffer through that whole robot dad thing. uh, (laughs) It was fun. It was good. Yeah. So, uh, this is the 10th episode of season four. Uh, it's uh, written and directed by Joss. So, you know, it's one of the big ones and, uh, it, it, uh, oh, perfect segue, Ember. So, uh, this episode features the introduction of the character of Tara, uh, played by Amber Benson. Um, and so my cat Ember Benson <laughs> is uh, making her presence known. Uh, so for, for this, uh, recording, my cat will be known as Ember Benson. Yes. I like it. I approve. Yeah. So, uh, anyways, I'll start with you, Ken. What uh, what are your thoughts on Hush? Why were you so excited to talk about this? Why is this one of the biggies? Uh, why is it one of the biggies? I just like it's one of the ones that so when you announced this podcast, it had been like five or six years since I had last rewatched Buffy. And, you know, as time goes by, you remember less and less moments of things you experience as you watch more art. Like it really becomes clear the stuff that like truly sticks out to you. Mm-hmm. And this is just one of those episodes that like you go back to when you think when you think of Buffy it's just like like this among a few others like a, a sort of remembered moment by moment even as I was rewatching it last night and today it was just like oh I remember this it's all so clear so streamlined I mean it messes with the formula of how the show had been doing things and it really um, takes some risks and and says like hey can we do entire episodes without relying on tricks that have kept audiences viewing up to this point, which they go on to do in other episodes with like restless at the end of the season or like once more with feeling, I feel like this is sort of the first one where they were like, Hey, I wonder if people can still pay attention. If every single scene doesn't have like quirky banter, like witty, yeah. like, like back and forths 
constantly. And, and it's, even though that's the bread and butter of Buffy, those, those quips that we laugh at constantly throughout each episode, like, it's sort of like a relief, like to, to see that like, oh my gosh, I care about the, I care about these characters and their feelings and what they're going to do and how they're going to behave without having writers behind them. Obviously the show is still entirely written, you know, by Joss, but like, it's one of those things where like, I was thinking at the beginning of this episode, like if, uh, well, like Willow, uh, says they're a bunch of, um, uh, wannabes, but what does she she say? One of blessed bees. One one of blessed bees. If if one of your friends said that in real life, you'd take a moment to like laugh or like comment on how clever that was or something, and like they just go back and forth and like nobody cares how clever anyone is on this show. <laughs> it's, so, they just take so, it for granted. Yeah, yeah, and I think that sort of like highlights one of the whole points of this episode is that words are sort of a um, a wall in communication, even though they. They help us so much and they're necessary, obviously, in so many ways. That's why the entire city's panicking. But like once you can get rid of those things that are just filler, then you can cut to the chase and really deal with things emotionally. Yeah, so the the like the episode opens with um, Professor Walsh. It's a dr- it's dream Professor Walsh, but Professor Walsh giving a, a lecture where she says communication, language, not the same thing. And um I think Joss has been quoted as saying, uh, in referencing this episode, he's been quoted as saying, you know, when we stop talking, we start communicating, which is, I get that. And this episode, you know, sort of proves that concept. It's a weird thing to say. That's a, like, that's, you could argue that that's absolutely not true, but in practice, the way this episode portrays it, that's exactly what happens. Like we see the awkwardness of, people trying to communicate with each other through words, particularly Buffy and Riley, who just can never make a connection with each other when they're trying to speak. And so it's not until the option of using words, the option of speaking to each other, it's not until that is removed that they, you know, cut through all the red tape and can make this sort of literal physical connection that they've been trying to get to. Yeah, and you were you mentioned this the sort of witty banter that this show is known for, and that um, our our heroes sort of take for granted. Um, in a subtle way, this episode kind of uh, highlights that by before the whole silence thing happens. The it, it's in that wanna blessed bees thing, the Wicca meeting. Um, the uh, girl who's leading the session or whatever tries to make what w- what could be a pretty typical Scooby gang, uh, you know, quip where she says uh, in response to Willow saying, hey, yeah, what about spells? And the, the girl's like, oh, yeah. And of course, we could we could all grab our broomsticks and fly on our broomsticks. And it's like she's obviously pretty proud of what she thinks is a witty joke that she just made. Like she was so snarky with that comment, but it's, we're used to the professionals <laughs> doing that. We're used to Buffy and Willow and Xander saying stuff like that. And they're so much better at it. So hearing that girl say it and sort of use the word broomstick twice in the same sentence is just clumsy. And I don't know. It just, I, I thought that was a good way of highlighting the fact that the Scooby gang, um, are are professionals leave the leave the quippy dialogue to the professionals yeah that's yeah that's hilarious 
They um, all have a team of writers working for them. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, so let's see. Um, I've seen a lot of uh, people, like a lot of online reviews or whatever. I've seen this episode referenced as the silent episode, which is obviously not the case. Uh, like the episode isn't silent, even for the 28 minutes in the middle when uh, everybody's voices are taken away. Um, it's dialogue. <laughs> like it's dialogue free it's not silent because uh the music both uh just the the soundtrack score and the diegetic music within the episode like when when giles plays dance macabre <laughs> in his mm -hmm. little uh screen presentation um all that stuff and the just the audio editing the sound editing of the the uh, sound of the world around you like when the kid it's when the kid drops his bottle and the glass breaks and shocks everybody because it's been so quiet. All that stuff is beautiful. Yeah, and, and it still shows how disjointed you can be without actual communication because Xander turns on the news and, you know, they get no information. Yeah, we're hearing somebody talk and, like, we under the guise of answering questions, but it doesn't help out anyone. And yeah. there's the cold, uh, you know, robotic voice of the computer that um, that the that um, Riley's resistance is, is using. And it's just, it's, it's, it's removed from any warmth uh, of, of humanity. And it, like, that's why havoc just like breaks out. Yeah. Everywhere suddenly, just because everyone's freaking out. So, um, I mean, that's the, that's the gimmick of the episode is the whole, uh, no dialogue 28 minutes of no dialogue and the sort of test i don't know if I, I don't know if joss has ever framed it this way i didn't listen to the audio commentary on this i watched I, i'm rewatching this on hulu so i'm not getting audio commentary or any of that stuff so i don't know if joss has addressed this before but i suspect at least part of sort of the the idea that was that went into writing this episode was to test himself to see if is this show more than just quippy dialogue like <laughs> will these characters still play if we take if we you know take away their ability to say things like a bunch of uh wanna blessed bees mm -hmm. um and i would say that uh the answer is yes and no it's an it's a very firm yes because the episode is great and all the characters still completely track um and and they pull off the gimmick of it um i'm sure the scary gimmick of removing one of the greatest strengths of your characters and and letting them still play i think it works perfectly uh the no comes from the fact that even though they're not speaking dialogue they're not being quippy uh with with like spoken words the the snarky quippiness of the scooby gang still comes through in even just their body language and the way they interact with each other and then when giles is when they're writing stuff on their dry erase boards uh, like they still get to use the language of buffy the vampire slayer they're just not speaking it out loud yeah i love that as just an experiment because it's like you you can take that one aspect away from them, but you can't change who they are. Like they're still going to be themselves completely. And it's uh, just a fun with visual gags way to have the exact same dynamic just of like, uh, uh, just, you know, Xander misunderstanding body language because his mind's always thinking about sex or, or um, the way Willow acts like she's 
uh, urgently t- writing something when it's just to say hi, Giles. Yeah. But still yeah. totally emblematic of like how cute she generally is in these situations. Like, yeah, uh, um, I I thought it was I I think it's fantastic. I mean, I I I wouldn't want every episode of the show to be done like this. But what what wowed me going back to it was just like how it was all so perfectly set up. There's no real B stories as much as everyone taking place in their own part of the A story mm-hmm. and how uh, it, it's, it's almost tongue in cheek. Like they made a rule for themselves in the writer's room to have them use the words, talk, say, communicate, um, listen over and over again in this parts where they are speaking. And, it, and I love just like the, like uh, Anya, you know, she's not good at communicating. She doesn't know what she can and can't say in front of certain other people. She's not getting the communication from Xander uh, that she needs to validate uh, his feelings for her. And it just goes to show, like, uh, it's it's in what people do and so much more than what they say. All of the, all of the, I think uh, Buffy and Riley talked about it as babble. Like, they're, they're mm-hmm. just, they just babble at each other. And that's what everything is when you're just sort of, like, putting off getting to a certain moment and with them there is the sexual tension of the the kiss or whatever and them being interested but i love that they chose this episode as the time to address that like hey there's there are bigger not lies that they're hiding from each other but just like there are untruths about like they cannot fully represent who they are without taking away the ability to cover up what they're what they're hiding with their words and we all do that so often whether we're flirting or, or trying to talk to a boss or trying to get something out of a friend or or anything like that it just it it gets rid of all of the the noise the static and it's just a fascinating way to look through the exact same world as it always has been but with just one aspect removed it's not a different prism it's not even like looking through the world as a musical like once more with feeling does it's just sort of like uh, it, 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 like I said, cuts off the static. It really just gets to the point. And um, I love that they find a way to do that, at least in some small way with every single character. Yeah. Um, and I, I like that you mentioned this because I, I, I wanted to find a way of just pointing out how often they use, like you said, how often they used variations on you know uh speak say tell word whatever like there's so many times uh like the episode opens with buffy and riley having a conversation and he's like so tell me about this dream and she's like i'm not saying a word and uh at the end of the it clo- the episode closes with uh riley them, and- not, them not being able to speak by choice yeah and they say uh, i guess we have to talk and then they just sit there silently so uh that's fantastic it's great um it's a true cliffhanger in an emotional sense. Like you're not waiting to see if somebody dies or something. It's, it's something that's been built up for 10 episodes. And I think even in the next episode, I haven't gone forward in this rewatch, but I think it just picks up from that moment. Like it, I I think you're right. I think it picks up exactly from right where we left off. Um, so let's talk about the bad guys because I feel like, uh, in addition to sort of the no dialogue gimmick, uh, the other memorable thing, Maybe to be fair, the more memorable thing um, are the gentlemen uh, who are often uh, cited by many fans as the the scariest villains that the show has ever had. So um, what do you think about the the creepy gentlemen? 
Oh, I, I mean, I love the gentleman. They're featured less than I remember. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm going through the Freddy movies right now for the first time, actually. I'd, I'd seen A Nightmare on Elm Street multiple times, but I, I'd never continued the story. So it's just like, uh, it's fun watching that, like, the with the song at the beginning like that's a clear nod to to freddy and and mm-hmm. that just like how over and over they they will go back to these classic sort of archetypes or villains whether it's dracula or or, or something freddy like they um buffy will have their own play on all of this and it's not so much that like you can't sleep as much as you can't talk but like everybody who the fear is still there as far as sleep goes because when everybody's asleep that's when they can come steal hearts and whatnot um i did think it was weird that in a college town everybody is in bed and asleep by 1 (laughs) a.m especially when there's like this like yeah epidemic that nobody can explain yeah yeah (laughs) um oh go ahead uh i i was just gonna say one of my favorite aspects of the gentleman is how it cuts out something that would previously strike me as unbelievable in Buffy. Not unbelievable, but Buffy always seemed to need to find a reason to explain what was happening in it and ring the bell of every time Ken guests on a podcast. He's going to find a way find a way to bring up Lost. But no, <laughs> nobody, nobody is questioning where the gentleman came from. Uh-huh. It's just a fairy tale, and they showed up, and we don't know why a scream blew their heads off but that's what happened and we're all fine with it because it works emotionally it just it, it it really defies other expectations set by previous buffy episodes as to explain the origin of all this stuff and 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 it, it i i just love that we don't even unless you're trying to analyze it for a purpose of a podcast or something like this you never even think about why the gentlemen are there you just accept it as reality that is a pretty tremendous thing that this episode pulls off because even in the most sort of frivolous throwaway monster of the week episodes before this um there's at the very least there's reference to oh this crazy thing is happening because it's the hellmouth like there's uh, the the bare minimum we get from pretty much every other bad guy is they're here they're here because of the hellmouth and they, we don't even get that in this episode. There's literally nothing like all of the research that goes into this. We don't discover what types of demons they are other than their fairy tale monsters. Uh, mm-hmm. We don't, we never find out what, why they need seven hearts. Like what we, we don't know what the gimmick behind that is or the purpose. And that's awesome. I totally agree with you. I love the ambiguity of these guys. Um, and possibly that is a, is a contributing factor, not possibly, I think undeniably that's a contributing factor to what makes them such memorable bad guys is that ambiguity that, uh, um, so on the most recent episode of gobbledygeek that Arlo and I just recorded last night, we talked about Scott McCloud's understanding comics, uh, which looks at the form and function, the, the way comics work and what makes them work. And one of the aspects of that is, uh, that, that, uh, animation and comics, um, amplify through simplification. Basically, they make characters more identifiable by making them less uh, physically representative of a of a real person. And so, whereas a lot of the the monsters and and everything in Buffy get some sort of explanation, oh, this is the you know this demon comes from this hell dimension, and the, this has always been their purpose, and they are worshipped by these people, or whatever. 
That makes them memorable for the little details, but the gentlemen are memorable not only for their tremendous design, which is we have to talk about, but also because we don't know what they are or what they want or where they came from. Um, yeah, it's it's the opposite of the Hellmouth. The Hellmouth is based on myth, essentially, a myth like relating to religion and history and all of that. So it need just like religious texts and other stuff needs to be meticulously explained by other people in the world who put so much belief into this old stuff. There's that shot where where Giles puts two and two together and just pulls out a fairy tale book, and that's, yeah. that's the show going like that's all you're going to get. This is a fairy tale. Yeah, yeah, that's so great. So great. Um, so the let's talk about the design of them, the actual visual. Uh, Joss has cited all kinds of uh, sources as possible inspirations for the gentleman. He mentioned the Nosferatu films, both of them, the original with Max Schreck and then the remake with Klaus Kinski. Uh, he obviously talked about Grimm's fairy tales. Uh, he mentioned Dark City, which is a uh, an Alex Proyas film that I love and doesn't get an awful lot of love from other people. So I thought that was cool that he mentioned that. I can totally uh, see that, yeah. Um, Hellraiser, he he said that uh, Pinhead was sort of a visual influence when they were kind of designing them. Uh, and uh, this is hilarious. He also compares them to Mr. Burns from <laughs> from The Simpsons, <laughs> which is beautiful. I, I, I love that. Like, that's uh, I see that even more than I see uh, Pinhead or Nosferatu. Is totally just a bunch of floating Mr. Burns's. That's um, hilarious. And uh, lots of people have talked about this, but in particular, uh, at, at one point in this, I'm going to cite specific uh, specific uh, paragraph from this essay. But uh, Rhonda Wilcox in the book Why Buffy Matters, she talks about this episode, excuse me, in detail. And uh, one of the aspects of it that she's looking at is the what the gentlemen sort of represent metaphorically and how uh, visually and also through uh, just their behavior, their mannerisms, they, they seem to represent a sort of classist kind of evil. They are visually, they are old white guys. Um, they are dressed impeccably in almost Victorian era, uh, you know, suits. Uh, they are, have well manicured if admittedly ghoulish uh, appearances um they have smug condescendingly charming smiles um they literally are looking down on people because they are super tall and they float above everything um and they have minions which in the script are dubbed footmen uh, yeah, I mean, now that you're saying this, the Mr. Burnsness it, it makes even more sense. So instead of footmen, let's call them Smitherses. <laughs> That's beautiful. Yes. All right. So they've got a bunch of Smitherses <laughs> that uh, <laughs> that do the menial, like getting their hands dirty part of the job, uh, which basically means they are the ones that have to touch the filthy lower class humans, um, and the the gentlemen. All they have to do is pull out their very delicate it's not a it's not a brutal like sacrificial dagger or some enchanted sword it's a very clinical antiseptic uh scalpel that they pull out of their medical bag and they very daintily almost like you know with their pinkies out they just very delicately reach in and cut open your chest and rip your heart out um so yeah i 
from a sort of metaphorical represent representational aspect, I think that's fascinating. But if you just want to be, if you just want to get down and dirty and say they look freaking cool, and I and I think the biggest part of that, for me at least, I think the biggest part is the creepy metal smiles that they keep on their faces. Totally. And, and yeah, the whole class stuff makes a lot of sense too, because then it gets down to even in the bigger sense of like when we were seeing the false news reports, that's like goes to controlling information. Like once the guys who are floating above everybody are able to get everyone to shut up, then they can control what happens around them. So I, I mean that, even even now, this episode came out in, what, 1999? That still feels like it's reverberating 20 years later in a way that makes sense. And mm-hmm. as as cool as the gentlemen are, I think their little Smithers guys are... are <laughs> I, I remember those being terrifying, too. Like, I, for some reason, I remembered them faceless, but I guess on the... Uh, on the close-ups you can see that they have faces, too. But just I like the whole... I think their faces are, like, wrapped in bandages or something. I I, I couldn't quite tell. Yeah, but just the whole idea of like them being in straight jackets but freed and they're out of control and they're mm-hmm. just doing the bidding for them but like that I don't know. It's a it's a pretty terrifying visual and as long as as long as we're discussing how awesome and scary these things are, I have to uh call out like you know, you uh, the more you watch this show, the more you get used to tropes and sort of like cutaways and, and whatnot. But man, they really get you with a classic horror trick in this episode. One of the scariest moments in the whole series is when uh, Amber's beaten on the door. Not Amber. Uh, 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 Tara's beaten on the door and you think it's going to be Willow opening it up because he, they're also intercutting that with Willow opening up her door. Yeah. But it's the gentleman there with a the heart. Yeah. And man, that that still got me this time. I wasn't ready for it. Agreed. That is a very classic misdirect with uh, having Willow open the door and then cutting to realize it's somebody else's door. <laughs> Anyways. Yeah, that was, that was beautiful. A similar moment, which was also um, this. I don't feel like Buffy does a lot of jump scares. I think maybe they try there. There are some jump scare ish types of things that they pull. I don't know that they, that they are successful at jump scares very often, but I think this episode gets two of them. The one you just mentioned. Um, and then the other one is when, um, Giles is, I will say friend, uh, Olivia uh, gets up in the middle of the night and is looking out the window and she sees across the courtyard. She sees one of the gentlemen floating around and that's super creepy. And then all of a sudden, sudden one of them floats right in front of the window and looks straight at her. Yes. And and even like just with the lack of noise that they that they have, there's the great part where you know Tara is just sort of like taking her time getting out of her mm-hmm. class and like reaching down. And it's like you can see twenty feet away, they're freaking approaching, man. Mm-hmm. Like get out of there! But like they're making no noise. It's 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 just it's brilliantly put together. Like even if even if it is just sort of a hodgepodge of ideas, who knows if like he was even trying to comment on society or. Or, or class or whatever, but uh, it, it works. Like there's something that we all in, inherently react to within it. So it, it's just, you can tell like as many bad guys as this show has had, like there's a reason we all remember the gentleman. Yeah. Because they don't, they don't have as much screen time as some other less memorable baddies do in other episodes. Yeah. Like <laughs> Dracula cough, cough. <laughs> oh man i can't wait to talk about that episode um yeah i i was i caught myself earlier uh 
I was about to say, you know, I wish we had gotten more of the gentleman. Like I wish either this had been a two part episode or that they had come back in a later episode. Part of me still does, but not really because just like the ambiguity and, and the fact that we don't know every detail about them adds to their allure. I think the fact that they were kind of a one and done also contributes to the mystery. Mm -hmm. So, um, Let's talk about, you mentioned Tara, you, you brought Tara's name up. So let's mention her. This is obviously the, our introduction to the character uh, of Tara. Another, another great example of them setting up someone being unable to speak or, or having lack right. of com communication skills at the beginning of the episode. Right. Just sort of somebody having a, a whimper of not even being able to use their own voice in a group they're trying to be an active member of. Yeah. And once they get through this thing together, then suddenly she has the ability to represent herself. I had forgotten just how sort of stuttery and um, and withdrawn she was in her early appearances. Like I, I remembered she had always been sort of shy and awkward. But in the scene when she is first trying to talk at that Wicca group, I was like, oh, I didn't I did not remember that she can barely get like two words out. Mm hmm. So. And, and, and it, it is weird because by the time, you know, she leaves us on the show, she is a strong character who has as much to say and all the all Scooby gang related things that happen. So, like, yeah, it's it's nuts to see that it took this to pull her out of her shell. Yeah. Uh, so that scene, um, not only is it our first meeting with uh, Tara, but more importantly, it's uh, Willow's first meeting with her. Um and well actually uh, not that scene but the scene when they uh mix their powers like the scene when they hold hands and and uh, mm -hmm. uh add their powers together or whatever because presumably willow had been going to that group a few times and maybe tara just hadn't said anything yeah yeah i think she said at one point i think willow said um yeah when she was i think in that same scene when she referred to them as one of blessed bees i think she's made reference to she'd been a couple times and yeah but uh so so i was mistaken not the scene when they first meet not when uh, not at the wicked group but in the later scene when they are holding hands um the so that scene is of course it's very sweet because it's the two of them like legitimately coming together for the first time they they hold hands in a in a ripe with romantic potential kind of way. And they like, uh, they like Tara is very obviously gazing at Willow. And then Willow kind of returns the gaze once they hold hands or whatever. Um, it, it's super sweet and I love it. And I love the Tara Willow relationship that comes out of this. We will inevitably talk about where that relationship goes, but I'm a fan of Willow and Tara. I think most people are. Uh, yes. But I want to just for a second, I want to play the role of the callous cynic <laughs> and I want to interpret that scene, just that specific scene um, in, in, in a cynical way. Um, if you'll allow me, if I were to squint my eyes and tilt my head in just the right way, I could almost imagine that what I'm seeing in Willow in that scene is less of a sort of romantic spark or uh you know, hey, this girl is kind of special and maybe we have something and more of a 
maybe secret thrill at power discovered and power expressed. And I, I raise that only because that is, I've always known that that is where Willow's story is ultimately going. But I think on this podcast, uh, I think a few times I or guests have mentioned the fact that there's kind of been little hints of that maybe all along in Willow's story. I, I can totally see that now that you bring it up. And also, they uh, there are a few... I think they use the word empowered or empowering a few times in the Wicca group as if that's as if the identity of being Wicca is what gives them their power. Right. When 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 they're still behaving like a bunch of girls who are like not going to listen to each other. Right. I th- I think I think the the mo- the moment they touch hands and move that vending machine is I mean obviously there's the romantic potential since it's sensually shot and and acted or whatever um but more more so it's just saying hey uniting with somebody else to do something together is what's actually empowering that's like a girl power like like yeah. unifying moment more than some sort of uh hey these two are going to kiss eventually <laughs> <laughs> yeah well said you said that better than i did <laughs> um uh, let's see what else. Um, so the, but it's a great moment. It's, it's one of the best moments. And I, I remember hearing some story at some point, maybe on a podcast somewhere or something, but that, um, uh, I think it was not planned for them to have a romantic thing until after that scene was shot. And it was like shortly thereafter that they were like, Hey, I think we have an idea of, of where this could go. Really? Like maybe, may, maybe it just had to do with uh, uh, the way, Amber Benson played Tara that I, I think it was like an episode or two later on, on set Whedon was just like, Hey, just so you know, you two, maybe you could play it. So something might happen with you guys in the future. That is fascinating and not, not at all out of the realm of possibility. I don't, I, I don't remember if I've heard that before, but I would believe that because famously Spike became the character that he became he was not intended to be a recurring character Mm -hmm. Uh, and it was only because uh, james marsters invested so much in his performance that they were like you know what we we need to change the entire arc of this character i just feel like that's a thing that has happened over the course of the show It's, it's a thing that happens i think in a lot of ongoing long form uh television shows or whatever you have to adjust to uh, actor performances and availability and that kind of stuff. So yeah, I, uh, I would completely believe that, but if that's true, then maybe that lends even more credence to my superficial cynical read of that scene. Like maybe that scene was even intended in the moment to be a shot of Willow. She had been struggling with the power to move that thing uh, and then they joined together and all of a sudden they had the power to move that thing very forcefully. And that was kind of a little, um, I'll put air quotes. I'll say metaphorical turn on for Willow. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I don't know. I, but I, I don't want to take anything away from, uh, Willow Terra shippers. Obviously they are adorable. I love that couple. And that was a very romantic scene. I mean, it doesn't have to be either or it can be both. And yeah. And yes, that's, 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 that's part of the great ambiguity of this episode in a lot of ways is what we're reading into the eyes of these characters from moment to moment. Just like, uh, it, it, it's just, 
that that to me goes hand in hand with the moment of the ironic timing of Buffy and Riley discovering that there's more to each of them than either of them could have ever imagined. Yeah. So I want to, um, I, I want to get to, I want to take us out talking about the Buffy Riley thing. Uh, but before we get to that, uh, I just want to mention, we've already talked about the fairy tale thing. You mentioned, uh, Giles going to the shelf and pulling out the fairy tale book. And that's like, Oh, Oh, you want to talk about one of the greatest scenes of all time in all of Buffy? Is that what you want to talk about? Well, uh, maybe, I mean, I okay. was going to a particular place, but I think maybe you want to, you're talking about the, the classroom scene. Yes. I mean, that's on YouTube. And if I think that's one of the things you can share with people, whether they've seen Buffy or not, or know these characters at all. It's just like, that is, cl- that's classic Buffy to me. I've, sh- I've watched that scene like just aside from this episode like a bunch of times i love every moment of it from like it's so obvious willis saying that they want hearts yeah and sanders is like boobs what yeah and the the buffy staking pantomime that mm-hmm. he misunderstands even even just like um anya's eating popcorn and and like telling giles to turn the projector around mm-hmm. or, or t- turn the sheet around like it's just that it's just got the classic Buffy sort of tropes in a scene like that, but you know, just without dialogue and we get to discover this weird part of Giles character that nobody could have ever guessed. And nobody even comments on, they just all sort of look at each other and that like he delights in making these gruesome drawings. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. um... He could have just written all of that out. (laughs) Yeah. It is hilarious that he, you're exactly right. He could have just written all of the details, but he had to do little cartoons. <laughs> like, and and even the timing of his presentation, he has to give the same reverence that he did to each beat. Like mm-hmm. with like the the one that just says then, and then he holds up his finger the yeah. same way as yeah. he always does. Yeah, he's like, wait for it, let it sink in. Uh huh. <laughs> yeah, uh, hold for applause. <laughs> I and. uh to to bring the audience the or the listener into the the real world for a second paul and i were recently discussing what we could uh uh get joint tattoos of and i i, th- I think paul i think it's time for us to get a giles drawing of a gentleman removing someone's heart just oh my on, god on our chest or something <laughs> oh i don't know why god. you don't want that with me oh my god um <laughs> i will have to try and sell to my wife the notion of you and i getting matching tattoos but <laughs> but i'll start that conversation and we'll see what happens well uh, which which would it be the the only slightly bloody heart removal scene or the the then exceptionally gruesome as he's triumphantly lifting the heart and the entire scene is covered in blood. <laughs> it is hilarious because they react to the first one thinking that's as bad as it's yeah. going to get. And yeah. then he has even more. I say, I say we get the, we start it the tattoo as the first one. And then as years go by, we just add more and more blood <laughs> as touch up. That's just great. So every, every year we'll go in, uh, <laughs> the anniversary of the tattoo will go in and be like, uh, yeah, just add some more blood. Yep. We, yeah, we finally got um, a routine for GobbleCon laid out. Oh, I, Jesus. I love it. All right. I don't, I don't know how this is going to go, but uh, I'll keep the listeners posted. Um, <laughs> so yeah, no, I agree. Uh, one of the, one of the shining moments of the entire series as a whole, that scene, it's just absolutely beautiful. Um, 
Okay, so no, the the fairy tale thing that I was gonna get, get to, uh, yours was better, but I was just gonna point out the whole uh, Buffy being. Well, it, it comes up in that scene, the notion that the princess screamed and killed the monsters or whatever, uh, and so Buffy is immediately positioned as the princess, which is fair. She's the blonde superheroine protagonist of the series but i just thought it was interesting that immediately she instantly as soon as he brought up the fact that the princess screams and kills the monsters she immediately was like okay well how do i get my voice back like that becomes her mission just right then and there is i gotta get my voice back so i can scream like a girl um but <laughs> but then the interesting thing okay so so i wanted to talk about how she's positioned positioned as the princess in a fairy tale uh but as is very typical for this series, um, all of those typical uh, fairy tale tropes are subverted, completely subverted. So she is not a fairy tale princess who's locked in a tower as a prisoner um, and the dashing hero has to come in and save her and awaken her with a kiss or whatever. Uh, in this version of the fairy tale, the monsters live in the tower. She comes crashing into the tower to rescue the handsome. <laughs> prince or whatever um, yes so, so good so that i mean that's all fantastic but then the girly scream so this is what i wanted to get to because there's there is maybe i guess some controversy or some disagreement on this on buffy's scream um it's always bothered me that scream has always bothered me because i so my interpretation of it has always been wow that was super anticlimactic that was just i don't know i i my f thought had been, I wish that they had sort of done some sound effects or, or post post editing to make that scream sound really significant. Like if they had sort of ramped it up somehow or added an under an under effect to it. I don't know. It just sounded like a weird kind of regular scream. I guess it was always my notion. So every time that scene happens, even though it's triumphant and climactic, I'm like, ugh. <laughs> whatever um and then so i did a little research and i found out uh that apparently they did in fact edit that scream that was intentionally uh edited in post-production um which means that for for whatever reason that scream which i interpret as being kind of blah and uninteresting and anticlimactic is exactly the sound that the sh the, the producers and joss intended for us to hear interesting yeah because it's not it's not like a classic memorable scream maybe it's just maybe it's intended to be more realistic like yeah you haven't had your voice for a while so it's not warmed up and it's just gonna sound like what it sounds like or something yeah, I don't know. I I, I, wa I wondered what your take was, because I, I guess what I was expecting was more of the classic sort of scream queen kind yeah. of scream from a horror movie. But well, I mean, and, but this is flipping the idea of a scream queen on your head, like because queen is invariably linked to princess. She yeah. is screaming um, and she could be considered a scream queen in the sense that she does a horror show, a horror based show every week. But Again, it's flipping that trope on the head where, where it's not sh her screaming because of the monsters. It's her screaming to get rid of the monsters. So maybe they wanted it to sound different. Yeah, I, I used the phrase girly scream a couple times, I think, maybe. Or did I just think that? I don't know. Anyways, the the phrase girly scream uh, has been in my head. And that's um, 
that's dismissive and and uh, reductive of me to to say or even think that but maybe that actually gets to it maybe they were intentionally they wanted it to not be a girly scream because buffy mm-hmm. is not a girly character so i don't i don't know i just it's still maybe my opinions of it'll change now that I know that that was an intentional choice that they actually edited it specifically to sound that way. So it must mean something, but I still find it. I still find myself even just thinking back on that scene. I kind of roll my eyes and like, Oh, that's the scream we were building up to, mm-hmm. but whatever. But I mean, when you're a slayer, I mean, I got to imagine every moment it doesn't play as, as perfectly cinematic, you know, sometimes you just <laughs> kill the things and you move on. Yeah. All right. I'll sure. I'll allow it. Even if everything else is perfectly cinematic in this episode, yeah. uh, maybe that one button, this wasn't, I don't know. Let's ask Ember Benson. Ember, what do you think the scream should have sounded like? Oh, she's looking at me. She wants to I, scream right now. I know that, that was her cue. I was seeing if, but, but you know, a cat will never do what there she want, is. you want it. There she is. Try again. Oh, she's just going to knock stuff over and make a bunch of noise. Thanks for nothing. <laughs> um, okay. So take, take her hand. Take her hand. <laughs> uh, so let's talk about uh, Buffy Riley, um, a, a controversial pairing uh, among many fans. And this episode moves that relationship forward. Um, I'll start off by asking your thoughts on Buffy and Riley. Are you a, are you a Riley hater? Do you like him? Do you just not care one way or the other? I I generally fall into, you know, a combination of liking him and not caring. It's it's it made sense structurally for the season what they did with him, mm-hmm. as far as like giving her a new interest that wasn't Angel, and him having a sort of secret agenda that will ultimately help her in her fight against evil. Um, but you know, just the surface level of, uh, you know, an older guy in class that's cute and not knowing how to navigate around that, especially after the traumatizing experience she had with the guy before him, like, I don't know, it all sort of makes sense in, in sort of tracking the college freshman female in the late nineties experience. I think her being into Riley and the awkwardness that it takes to get them to be close is totally true to life. It, it, it works for me. Yeah. I, I completely agree with that. I tend to put myself more in, I, I lean more towards the, I'm a fan of Riley. Um, I would never say I hate Riley. I think he's a, I think he's a good character. And I, mm-hmm. I think exactly what you just said, basically he, he serves maybe, a maybe narrative Lucas purpose. Is a little, maybe Lucas is a little cheesy sometimes, but I, I don't know. It, it makes sense. in what Buffy be attracted to with like especially as sort of a uh, 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 especially after angel especially after the brooding constants of angel i i I don't know if you noticed this but and it has been two months since i recorded the previous episodes so um but in the in uh, what was the one right before this something blue uh yeah that episode ended with buffy laughingly saying speaking things we all roll our eyes at of buffy saying i i'm over my bad boy phase or whatever right she says Mm -hmm. something about yeah i'm done with bad boys this episode opens with dream walsh professor walsh in buffy's dream say telling riley be a good boy now that's buffy's dream so that is buffy dreaming that professor walsh riley's authority figure 
Riley's mother figure telling him to be a good boy. So last time we saw Buffy, she said, I'm out of my bad boy phase. This time it opens with her dreaming about Riley being the good boy. Interesting. I had not put that together. So anyways, uh, I think I... I don't. I, I don't know if I have an opinion on Lucas's acting abilities. Like I've seen him in other stuff, but I, I tend to, I tend to just always identify him as Riley. So maybe he just mm-hmm. always acts as Riley. I don't know. I like Riley. I think he serves a purpose in the narrative. Um, whether or not I would call myself a Riley and Buffy shipper or not, I wouldn't go that far. I just think he's a fine character. I don't. I don't. There's yeah. a there's a large chunk of the fan base that actively hate him and cannot talk about the character of Riley even for like review purposes without pointing out he's an awful character. I can't stand him. Like anytime they mention Riley, they're like, and he does this because he's an idiot <laughs> or whatever. And I'm like, come on, he's just a he's just a character. He's just a yeah. Guy. That's so that's so silly. I mean, I I'm not a shipper of anyone. I I life is full of many different relationships. I I support Buffy being with Angel when she has to, Riley when she has to, and Spike when it works out, you know? Like it it all makes sense to me. That's why it's a good show. Yeah. Um so I said earlier that I wanted there was something I actually wanted to read out of uh Rhonda Wilcox's Why Buffy Matters. Uh and it relates to well, it relates it starts off relating to Riley, but it's about the the significant others in Buffy's life. Um, so in a section of her discussion on this episode, she's talking about, uh, the, uh, the classic story, the, the Greco Roman epic, uh, the, I don't know how to pronounce it. Aenid, I think maybe is how it's pronounced. I'm so sorry. This is a scholarly podcast. Scholarly listeners, please write in and correct me. Uh, but the character, uh, again, pronunciation, uh, I think it's Aeneas maybe. Uh, the hero from that story. There are a lot of parallels that uh, Wilcox draws between that uh, Greek hero and the character of Riley. And I won't go into all of them, uh, but they're not all favorable. <laughs> like she points out the, the, the shortcomings of the character of Aeneas and how they track with the shortcomings of the character of Riley. But this is what I wanted to get to. So she goes through all that. And then she says, uh, at this point, I can't resist indulging in a brief digression. The other two major Greco-Roman epics are, of course, the Iliad and the Odyssey. Their heroes are Achilles and Odysseus, respectively. Aeneas, Achilles, and Odysseus certainly represent three very different types of heroes, and it seems to me that they correlate to the three main romantic interests in Buffy's life. Achilles, who sulks and broods in his tent, is an extraordinarily powerful warrior who sometimes fights for the right and sometimes does not, and gloomily ponders his own curious form of immortality. Achilles is, of course, angel. Odysseus, who has a wonderful facility with language, who is a trickster in both word and deed, who is a great fighter but does not seem to take that as his defining characteristic, who enjoys having sex and is more or less kind to the various women he encounters, but is basically a one-woman man who actually enjoys hanging out with and fighting alongside the goddess of defensive warfare, Athena. Odysseus, my favorite, is Spike. Whoa. So that was just... (laughs) When I was reading this last night, I was like, oh, that is beautiful. That is absolutely beautiful. Um, Yeah, I just I wanted to share that. 
And I'm dying. Yeah, no, I'm that's... dying to get Wilcox on this podcast. So I figure if I quote her often enough, maybe we can get her to come on the show. Yeah, do it. Do it, Wilcox. That was that's great. I'm I'm glad other people do this research and stuff for us because I would have never jumped to these places. <laughs> I've mentioned Rhonda a few times on the podcast. She's the she is the um, referred to as the mother of Buffy studies. Her and uh, the late David Lavery are the ones that uh, started the whole Whedon Studies Association. So. She's a wonderful, lovely person, and I've spoken to her at, uh, well, most recently at the last Edge, and she said she'll come on the podcast. So she she said she's going to join me. It's just a matter of actually getting her to do that. So Rhonda, I'm going to get you. You're, you're, you're coming on the show, but yeah, I absolutely loved that uh, that explanation of the three characters, especially Spike, because yeah, my favorite. But she also refers to uh, um, Riley as the least liminal of Buffy's significant others, which by which I, I take that to mean he's the least, like he's the most mundane. He's the most like just straight up normal human. Um, he, he doesn't have, he has the least darkness in him, mm-hmm. which I get what she's saying there. And I, I, I take her at her word. She's, I'm sure she's correct, but you could argue like Riley has some darkness. He, he goes to a dark place, but totally. Yeah. Not as dark as Angel, not as dark as Spike. Yeah, especially not if he hasn't lived over a century to see the amount of darkness that they have. Yeah, that's all they really have on him. Exactly. Um, So I want to point out as we're coming to the end here that this is uh, this episode received two Emmy nominations. Uh, The Emmys were famously uh, standoffish to Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Uh, It only received a handful of nominations over the course of its entire run. Uh, the two nominations this episode got outstanding cinematography for a single camera series and outstanding writing for a drama series. Uh, it lost both of those to the West wing. Damn. But, <laughs> but very, very well-deserved nominations. Like yeah. they, they, they sort of go hand in hand, like, and not, it's a well-written episode because there's no dialogue and it all has to be written upon action. And then it has to be shot more beautifully than all the others to properly convey what words can't get across. Exactly. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Um, all right. Well, uh, is there anything else, anything that we didn't cover that had to be said? I, I don't, I don't know. Uh, I mean, there's, there's the, the whole meta thing that we could go into, but I feel like Joss has gotten off pretty easily. I mean, he didn't have to stop communicating with the world <laughs> in order for his truth to come across, you know? Like, uh, <laughs> But I'll find a way to tie every episode into that as we go forward. <laughs> uh, that's fair. That's fair. That was very meta. I wasn't expecting that, but uh, well played. <laughs> um, J- Joss, if you're listening, it's just a friendly jab. I love you. <laughs> I'm sure he listens to this. <laughs> Um, Joss, I love you, but I have complicated feelings about you. Um, and that's what makes a great character, as we just learned about about everyone. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, this was great. Uh, fantastic episode. Um, uh, great to have you back on. Happy to be back. Have me have me back once a year. <laughs> once a year. It's been, it's been going great. The the absolute bare minimum I can promise is I'll have you back once a year on the podcast. All right. Uh, no, you'll, I'll, I'll have you back. Uh, it's always great to talk to you. And, um, do you want to, I, I don't know how much, I feel like you're, you're back in your disconnecting from, uh, the online life phase, but if, uh, you have any, uh, ways that you would like people to track you down, if you want to share that now. Uh, 
I, I am currently disconnected. You know, I watched the Fire Festival documentaries and uh, an, an American meme documentary, and I've never felt more uh, ashamed of my generation. So I'm, I'm currently backed out of the Internet. Oh, and man. I, well, this I was a we coup all... then having you on the mic for this. Yeah, it's a very special appearance. People who who people got to search for me if they want me now. I think the only thing you can cur- currently follow or subscribe to me on is uh, YouTube. I have my own channel there, and we also just started the Alex Jonestown Massacre YouTube channel. You can just type that into YouTube, and um, our two music videos are up on there for the two songs we have out. And um, really, just. Yeah, I, I I can't offer a Twitter or anything at this moment. Who knows no, if that'll change by next time I'm on? But everybody, please listen to Fear of a Flat Planet. It is arguably the thing I've been a part of artistically in my life that I'm most proud of. So I'm really trying to make people get into us. Yeah, uh, more power to you for being disconnected from the internet. I wish I had that strength of character, uh, <laughs> and uh, I'm especially proud that the way that you are maintaining contact with the outside world is through your art so god bless you my friend i love you um like i said i'll i'll put some links in the show notes to uh the band information and uh do you guys have an official website i don't think you do you're just on soundcloud is that uh, yeah we don't have an official website you can follow us on spotify and uh subscribe to the youtube channel um and and there is a um there is a Twitter account that our lead singer is running. I believe it's just Alex Jonestown underscore. I might be wrong, but uh, okay. you can you can find us on there somewhere. We we will be touring the South and the Midwest on spring break and in the summer. So okay, yeah, awesome. Um, yeah, it's punk rock, guys. Track it down. <laughs> we can't hold your hands. This stuff is only valuable if you if you find it on your own. Yeah, the entire the entire medium, the entire genre is based on DIY. So yeah. do it yourself, people. <laughs> <laughs> Keep circulating the tapes. Uh, all right. So, Ken, thanks again. Uh, I'll have you back. and We'll talk more about other stuff. And uh, everybody uh, at home, thank you for listening. Thank you for being patient and waiting around. Assuming you have, and this isn't your first episode. If it is, welcome. Um, you can find links to this and all of our past episodes at the website conswithdead.com. Or you can subscribe to the show on iTunes. Uh, while you're there, please rate us or write us a review. There are tons of uh, Buffy, Angel, Joss Whedon podcasts. Most of them are better than this one, but I try. My heart is in the right place, so please say some nice things about me and help me stand out from the crowd. Uh, if you've got any questions for me or any of my guests, or if you'd just like to share your thoughts on anything we've discussed, please join the conversation. Uh, you can drop us an email at conswithdead at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at cons with dead or reach out to us on the Facebook group, which is brace yourselves uh, conversations with conversations with dead people. Um, <laughs> next week, Brazilian fan community organizer, Johnny Ho returns. Uh, I don't think he's been, I think he was on episode 12. Oh my gosh. This is episode 27. He hasn't been on since episode 12. He's coming back uh, to help me examine episodes 411 doomed and 412, a new man. Until then, Gur Arg, everybody. Gur Arg. Oh,